Good morning, everyone. I'm very excited to open with you again to the book of James. So open with me to James chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 2 to 4 today. James is one of, if not the earliest letter in the New Testament, written by the earthly brother of Jesus, but who identifies himself simply as the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James didn't grow up believing that Jesus, his brother, was the Messiah, but the resurrection of Christ changed everything for him. Jesus is Lord, James says. And he writes this very practical letter to help us to live out our lives as disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read together James 1. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 4. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Our Lord, your word is our treasure. Your love is our treasure. As we sang this morning, uh, when all that we fear is all that is true, your perfect love is truer. And this morning we gather as your people who love you and who need you, who are desperate and hungry for your word. And so we ask that you would meet with us and let your word have effect in our lives, we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week we spoke about James's particular voice, how his voice is quite unique in the New Testament. Most letters in the New Testament open with some kind of a appreciation for the readers uh, in the form of a thanksgiving given to God or some blessing offered to God for his spiritual provision in their lives. Not so in James. James just jumps straight into exhortation. And his opening to me is proof that he must have had some kind of capital with his readers. There must have been an authority accepted here. So just imagine with me, if you're a part of that first community that receives this letter, the letter of James. Maybe you're a little family gathered together with a small congregation, a struggling group of believers. You think back over the time of how you had to flee from Jerusalem because of the persecution that broke out there. Life hasn't been easy. It's been very tough. You had to give up your lives, maybe your business, you're struggling to make ends meet, and you are still treated very poorly by your neighbors. Some of the members in your little church are getting sick. You all have taken quite a battering. This message comes from James. The elder has it. There's excitement in the church, and the scroll is unrolled, and everyone is gathered, and he begins to read. Just a few words in, and your heart sinks a little bit. Count it all joy when you meet trials. What on earth? 
After everything that we've been through, this is the first thing that James would say to us. He gives us this command. When we meet trials, count it all joy. Has James lost his mind? Don't worry. Be happy. There had to have been a trust in this community for James to open like this and this letter not to have been tossed out after the first line. This opening command is one of the most perplexing commands in all the New Testament. It is counterintuitive and it is countercultural. I mean, imagine driving along the highway and you saw this written on a billboard. Count it all joy when you suffer. You would think whoever put it up there was a crazed fanatic. We live in a culture determined to insulate itself from sufferings and trials, from anything that is inconvenient and discomfort and from discomforts. And even in the church, we struggle with this. Our hearts don't naturally go to joy when trials come, and we don't enjoy it when people tell us that's where our hearts ought to go. We want to complain, and we want to question. Often we doubt. But we are going to hear James out, because as we come to the Word of God, it has capital with us. It is our authority. It is our life. And we know, as we come to his word, if we have ears to hear, there is treasure for us today. So there are three verses in this section, and I just want to point out three things to you this morning. We're going to consider this radical command, firstly. And secondly, we're going to look at the passage's underrated reward. And finally, the glorious goal behind it all. So number one, a radical command. Let me read verse two again to you. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There are verses that you come to in the Bible and the New Testament that you wish that you could dodge, and this is one of them. But James is not going to let you dodge this verse if you are a Christian. He says, when you meet trials, not if. We wish it was if. We wish there was an escape clause for us as Christians to facing trials, but that is not the case. Despite what the prosperity preachers say and promise that Scripture doesn't promise, cashing in on a culture that desires to avoid pain, trouble comes to all people, and the promise of the New Testament is because you are a Christian, sometimes it will come to you for that very reason. What did Jesus say? In this world you will have trouble, and the context is because you are my disciples. When trials come to us, they, they don't book ahead of time, do they? They show up at our door unannounced. I love the language that James employs. As I'm studying this week through this passage, I realize James's words are so descriptive. The, the passage basically preaches itself. When he says the trials that you meet here, it's a word that appears three times in the New Testament. James uses it once and Luke uses it twice. Once in the Gospel of Luke and once in the book of Acts. So in Acts 27, Paul is a prisoner on a boat and they are lost at sea for some time. Finally, they see land and they make a break for the land and it says their ship struck a reef, a sandbar. It's the same word. In Luke chapter 10, we see in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, chapter 10, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. Fell among is the same word that James uses here for meet. 
A man is going and he has no idea what's around the corner, what's waiting for him. Bandits are waiting and he stumbles into their trap. They pounce on him without warning and before he knows it, he's naked and he's bleeding on the street. That is a good description of how we often meet trials in life, isn't it? And maybe you read this and you think in your heart, but this is not really for me. James here is probably talking about those standard everyday trials that we face, surely not the things that I'm going through, not my trials that leave me feeling or bleeding and bruised and broken. But again, James is not going to let us escape. The language he employs is very general here. The word for trial, he uses it time and time again in chapter one. It has a very broad meaning. It can refer to those things that come at you from the outside, like an arrow shot at you from an enemy. So Paul, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, it's the same word, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The word can also refer to the trouble that comes from within our own hearts and minds, the word temptations. And James uses, uses the word in that way in chapter 1. In verses 13 and 14, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted. It's the same word as the word for trial. I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's the same general word for trial and temptation. And indeed, we know every Temptation is a trial that, if you can endure, does lead to steadfastness. And every trial comes with the temptation to give up. James adds the qualifier, just in case you're still trying to escape. He says, trials of various kinds, whatever it is you're facing. And he, he addresses a broad scope of suffering in this letter. Poverty, suffering for your faith, severe sickness, unfair treatment, temptations. Douglas Moo in his commentary says what James is doing is deliberately casting here in the opening um, words of this letter, casting the net widely. That word of various kinds can mean multicolored. Multicolored, it speaks of intricacy and complexity and sometimes you go through trials that you're facing that are complex issues and you don't know what wisdom means in your situation. It's like a tangled slinky that you can't unravel. Some trials you face and you can't see an end to them. Those are the, the worst kinds of trials, aren't they? When there is no end in sight to your pain and suffering. Whatever you meet today as Christ's exile living in a fallen world, whether it's persecution or poverty or sickness or loneliness or bereavement or disappointment or temptations or complex life issues, this command is for you. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. So maybe you acknowledge, okay, I can't get away from it, but what does that even mean? Where do I even begin? Well, it's helpful to know what James is not saying here. He is not making light of their situation. 
God doesn't make light of your trouble today. James is not giving a pep talk. He's not a motivational speaker. He's not calling for the planting of a fake smile upon your face, just getting on with it with a, a false and, and jolly attitude. He's not saying that you take joy necessarily in the trial itself. This isn't masochism. You aren't to be glad when you're falsely accused at work or glad when your child gets cancer. You're not glad because your spouse has committed adultery. James is not saying as well that joy is the only emotion that you experience in your trial as if you can't be angered by it or feel deep and lasting grief. But what James is saying, he is speaking of a deliberate and a conscious decision to experience joy in times of trial. That phrase, all joy, probably signifies intensity, as in, in the NIV, pure joy, unalloyed joy. Not that the joy is not accompanied sometimes by sadness or grief, but that it is genuine. That there is real, precious joy available for the believer in his trial, in her trial. James is calling for a settled conviction in your heart today that it doesn't matter what I go through, I can find joy. That's why he doesn't just say rejoice when trials come. He says, count it all joy. Evaluate in your heart. Come to the calculated conviction. I can have joy. That word for count is the same word we see Paul use in Philippians chapter 3, 7 and 8, where he weighs up. Christ, next to everything that he's had to give up in his life. Christ, next to everything that he has in his life. And he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. James is saying, on the balance of things, what you gain in your trial, what you gain is enough to account it all as joy. Now, Scripture provides various reasons for having joy in the middle of suffering. One of those is what you have today. If you are a child of God, what you possess, doesn't matter what else is going on, what you have as his child is enough for joy. Lloyd John Ogilvie was a Presbyterian minister who died in 2019, and he wrote decades ago about the worst year of his life. His wife in this one year underwent five major surgeries followed by radiation and chemotherapy. In the church, he had lost several staff in quick succession and there were troubles brewing there. Discouragement assaulted his feelings, but he writes this. He says, the greatest discovery that I have made in the midst of all the difficulties is that I can have joy when I can't feel like it. When I had every reason to feel beaten, I felt joy. In spite of everything, God gave me the conviction of being loved and the certainty that nothing could separate me from Him. It was not happiness, gush, or jolliness, but a constant flow of the Spirit through me. At no time did He give me the easy confidence that everything would work out as I wanted, as I wanted it on my timetable but that he was in charge and would give me and my family enough courage for each day and grace. Joy is always a result of that. God's grace and his presence are enough for you, for joy for today. 
Another reason given scripturally for having joy is what it means to the world, what it means for our witness. Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 did not know what the outcome of their imprisonment in that Philippian jail would be. They were beaten. They were bruised, shackled in the inner cell on a cold prison floor. But when they looked at one another, they knew that there was reason to rejoice. And so what did they do? They sang in the darkness. They sang praise to the Father. We are suffering with Him. We are suffering for Him. Their voices filled the prison. And we know the earth-shaking results of that testimony. Our salvation came that night to the Philippian jailer. So Scripture gives many reasons for joy and trial, but James here gives one of his own, and it's not unique to him. It's the same that Paul is teaching in Romans 5, that Peter teaches in 1 Peter chapter 4. But what he's saying is there is, every, there is something, there is something that God is doing in every trial that you face as a child of God, everyone. I'm not talking here about the earthly reasons that we want to cling to. We want to know what the outcome of our suffering will be, how it will lead to an earthly good. Those things we want to know, those things God doesn't give to us. It's a truth that belongs to Him, but what He's talking about is something that God is doing inside of us through our trials, every trial. And what He's doing is glorious enough to be able to count it all joy. So number two, let's look at this, this underrated reward, an underrated reward. They say that knowledge is power. And so one of the reasons that we learn good theology is that we would be ready to suffer, that we would be able to and be empowered to suffer well as Christians when the time of trial comes. That's why we need the theology to be set beforehand in our hearts. Scott Hubbard, in an article for Desiring God, on this passage writes this. He says, Some sufferers bow their heads and bless the Lord, while others curse Him. Some say through tears, I trust you, while others refuse to pray. Some collapse into God's presence and learn to love Him with a broken heart, while others turn their backs and walk away. What makes the difference between such sufferers? Dozens of factors, surely, but one of the most significant is what we know about suffering. The Apostle James, writing to Christians torn by trials, calls them to suffer faithfully because of what they know. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know. And what does James say that we know? What what does it say? Maybe not what we wish it would say. He doesn't say, for you know that God will keep it light. He doesn't say, for you know that God will make it short and change it soon. No, what he says is something that we, if we're honest, desire less today, but is more precious by far. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So James here is calling a trial A test, isn't he? Something test that tests our faith. It proves its genuineness. Some faith is not genuine. Some faith is just paying lip service to the truth. And trials have the effect of proving the faith that is real. Alec Motier, I said, I've been saying Motier for ages and nobody's corrected me. Somebody corrected me after the first service. 
Alec Motier in his commentary says, we say that we believe that God is our Father, but as long as we remain untested on the point, our belief falls short of steady conviction. But suppose the day comes as it does and will, when circumstances seem to mock our creed, when the cruelty of life denies his fatherliness. His silence calls in question his almightiness and the sheer haphazard, meaningless jumble of events challenges the possibility of a creator's ordering hand. It is in this way that life's trials test our faith for genuineness. So trials reveal the soil of our hearts, don't they? Is there good soil, the soil Jesus was talking about in his parable, or is it shallow soil? Now we accept the value of testing in all different walks of life, how much more should we accept it as valuable for the testing of our faith? When you, when you buy a product, you want to know that that product works, that it's not going to break after two weeks, and so you'll see that sticker, whatever it is, SABS approved, and there's a little bit of confidence then in the product. Sheree and I are coming up on, on 10 years of marriage, and we wanted to get away for a couple nights, and it's so difficult for me to go anywhere new and to stay anywhere new, because you don't know what it's going to be like. The pictures don't paint a full picture often. So I look for those star ratings, right? And the website we booked through has the system where, whereby they have a star rating based on the feedback of hundreds of customers. We want to know, word of mouth, is this the genuine deal? And faith is tested by trials to prove its genuineness. But what James is actually saying here goes even beyond that, that trials reveal the genuineness of faith. The testing he speaks of is a special word, a rare word in the Bible taken from the field of metallurgy, speaking of the refining process that gold and silver goes through. Guys, when you bend down on one knee, and you pop open the box and you ask the question to which you hope the answer is, I will, right? What better be in that box is not a, a clump of ore, hey? A clump of ore is not going to get you very far. When you open the box, there must be something shiny and sparkling and refined in there. Gold and silver ore goes through an intense process of refining so that the impurities would be removed. This is the word that James uses for testing, so he's saying our faith is made more valuable and precious through the refining of trials. That's why he says the testing of faith produces, it produces something. And that is a precious word when you are suffering because we know that trials tend to take from us, don't they? Trials consume what we love, what we hold dear, what we cling to is stripped from us. This is often the heart of our complaint against the sovereign God because we know that He is the one who gives and who takes away. It is in His hands, our lives. They come from Him, these trials. Sufferings tend to consume, but what we hear James saying here is that these trials produce. The promise is that God, the Father, never takes from His children without also giving at the same time. He disciplines those He loves. And our trials work in us something precious. They work in us steadfastness. Different versions say perseverance or endurance, and those are good words, but I, I, I love the ESV's steadfastness. The Greek word is a compound word. It comes from the the verb meno, which means, it's a big word in the New Testament, it means to remain, to stay, 
to dwell, to abide. From that word and the preposition hoopa, which means under. So literally the word means to remain under. It's very descriptive. Who of you watch the Olympics? Enjoy the Olympics. I used to enjoy the Olympics when DSTV was not so expensive. But when you watch the Olympics, you get to see sports that you wouldn't otherwise get to watch, right? And so there's only one time where I'll watch weightlifting, but, and that's during the Olympics. And in weightlifting, we have a, a picture of what James is talking about here. These guys who, who pick up immense amounts of weight with immense strength, and they hold that, that bar above their heads, and they have to keep it there for a few moments, straining under the pressure. I mean, that metal bar is bending as the weights sag on either end. Immense strength. That's the picture that this word conveys. Remain under steadfastness. And you know that that doesn't come overnight. They didn't just show up on the day and try to lift the bar. It was years and years of training every day in the gym, pressure causing micro tears and muscles so that bigger muscle could be built in its place. This is how faith grows into constancy, only through the pressure of trials. Those of you who are parents, you know that there's often our desire to shield our children from suffering, shield them from Trouble. We wish that we could just go before and smooth everything out in their lives, but we know we can't do that. And in fact, the troubles that they go through are important in their lives. I, I think of Judah. Um, he's my, my middle son, our adopted son. And I know that life is not going to be easy for him in many ways. He is a, a Sutu boy growing up in a white family, an English-speaking Sutu boy growing up in a white family in KZN. And I wish I could go before him into his schools and wherever he's going to be and, and deal with any nasty kids before they can say anything and, and stop whatever might be said. But I can't do that. What I can do is walk with him through it and pray. Pray for him that God's grace would meet him in his trial, make him strong and faithful and kind as an adult. And nature teaches us the, the same lesson. If you free a butterfly from its chrysalis, so you don't allow that butterfly the opportunity to break out of the chrysalis itself, it will not develop the strength it needs to be able to fly. You'll kill it. Every test that we face as Christians is preparation for future trials. Trials build muscle in those who face trials and cling to Christ in the middle of them. And it doesn't always feel that way. When you're going through trial after trial, you don't feel I'm being, I can feel my muscle being built through these things. I don't know if my trials are making me sore. I come out, and this is true in my life, I come out of that chrysalis often feeling heavier than the, the fat caterpillar that I was going into it. Honestly, that is me. So I understand the wrestle that we have with this passage. I've been, over the last few months, feeling some some anxieties, and they've buffeted my heart and my soul. And when the next one comes, I don't feel like, wow, I'm stronger to face this than I was. In fact, I feel raw, I feel ginger, I feel skittish even at times. When is it going to strike next in my life? I feel weaker than before, and maybe that's how you feel. I'm not soaring. I'm not even running or walking. Listen to James's word. All he says is, stand, just stand. 
The enemy comes around to point out how pathetic you are. Look at you straining under the weight. You're so weak compared to your peers. Those other mothers, those other fathers, those other pastors, other Christians. Obviously, this Christianity thing doesn't work for you. James says, stand, remain, under, abide. That's what God is calling you to do. That's the the word Jesus used, isn't it? Abide in me and I in you. We are playing the long game here. Wobbly knees under the bar is not a sign of failure or a sign of worthlessness. It is training for tomorrow. It is producing a reward in you that is of great value. Steadfastness, learning to depend on God and not on yourself. That is a gift. It is a gift of grace, more precious than gold. We sometimes sing that old hymn written by John Newton. I asked the Lord that I might grow. And in it he says, These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Breaking down the things that you find your joy in so that you are able to find your joy and your strength in Christ. Testing produces steadfastness. If those words could just settle in our hearts and take root in our hearts and shape our desires, then we would be able to to face the trials that we face with the most radical of responses where we count it all joy in Him. Finally, number three, we see a glorious goal. As valuable as steadfastness is, it is only a stepping stone to something else, something greater. James says in verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the ultimate goal of the refining process. He says perfection, which he says positively is that you are complete, you are whole. That's what James is writing for throughout this letter, for spiritual wholeness. And he says negatively that you would be lacking in nothing. And as I said last week, we're going to hear James, and, and James echoes the voice of our Lord again and again. Jesus said in Matthew 5:48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the goal. Again, you come to the passage and you say, I don't even know what that means. I'm not going to be perfect in this life. And that's true. We mustn't misunderstand what James says, what Jesus is saying. This isn't teaching, as some believe, a sinless perfection that we reach in this life. But this is the scriptural target of our hearts. It's summed up with one word, Christ-likeness. We set our hearts on Him. We set our hearts on His righteousness. So you have to understand, as we come to this passage, if your heart is not set on Christ, if He Himself is not the glorious prize of life, then the joy that James is speaking of here, the real joy available in trials, is not available for you. Our hearts are set on Christ. And ultimately, we can count it all joy because we know this, that through our trials, God is leading us towards maturity in Christ. Trials produce in us the only thing that's going to last into eternity. And God's purpose is grand. It is precious. He's promised, I'm making you like my son. 
like a sculptor who has a glorious vision, who whittles or chisels away at everything that's not part of that vision. His teaching isn't unique to James. As I said, it's in Paul and in Peter, but it is unique in the way that James tells it and in the way that he places an emphasis on our role here. He actually says, let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it have its full effect. He is calling us in the midst of our trials to resist the temptation to do everything other than counting it all joy. Instead of counting it joy, what do we do? Our hearts go to doubt. We doubt God's goodness. We doubt His power. We doubt His love for us. We say, if this is happening, if this is happening to me, maybe He doesn't really care. Maybe He doesn't really love me. Instead of joy, we choose envy. Why does God seem to love them more than me? Why do I suffer when they don't? Instead of joy, we choose wounded pride. Our prayers cease and bitterness grows in our hearts. Would God even hear me anyway? I know this is a struggle for me. That's why the prayer of joy in my life goes hand in hand with another prayer. I pray, God, will you remove from me the pride, the sense of entitlement in my heart, all the I deserves that I harbor there. We withdraw from his life-giving word. In our trials, we withdraw even from Christian community. James is saying, no, count it all joy. True joy comes in Christ and in being like him. And that's what the true Christian wants. We want the effects of this perfection. We want holiness. We want sanctification. We want victory over sin. We want to be able to comfort others with the comfort that we have received. We want to be peacemakers and servants to others. And yet we rail against the process that God must use in order to get us there. Sanctification through trial. Again, Matthias says, James's road is both uphill and thorny. The benefits he promises are hard won, and progress painfully made can be consolidated only by a repetition of the same costly effort. So think of those mature Christians that you have in your life, those people you know who are an encouragement to be around. You know who I'm talking about. They've been going at it for a long time. There's a sweetness in being around them. Trials have not embittered them, but rather produced upon them the aroma of Christ. There is a humility to those Christians, isn't there? And why, why is that? It's because they have learned the truth that Christ-likeness doesn't come overnight. It comes slowly and painfully as God removes our trials and produces joy through our dependence upon Him. Those Christians never soared through life. They didn't run while everyone else trudged along. They simply remained in him under trials. They stood when they thought that they couldn't, and they were lifted up when they fell. They look back at the story of their lives. The story of their lives is this. God has done it. And so if you are feeling despair at even the mention of the word perfection, despairing of this goal, you need to know that it is a glorious goal to which God commits himself if you are a child of God. As I mentioned last week, as we come to these big actions in the letter of James, these things that he calls us to, he doesn't call us to approach them trying to find strength in ourselves. If that is your approach, you will fail. 
we are to approach Christ and find in Him everything that we need. James 4 verse 8 and 10, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Christian, do you struggle with joy today? Come to Christ. Come to Christ and ask. Ask that He would reveal again His glory. Ask that He would make this plan with its intended goal, that He would make it beautiful again in your heart. Ask that He would hold your heart in trial. And today, choose. Choose to praise the Father for His character that cannot change and cannot fail. He is unrelenting in this, and He will not fail in His goals. His promise is to make His children like the Son. And He is the God of transforming grace. So there is joy available for you today. Let's pray. Father, we need your help today. So often, instead of joy, we choose other things. We confess today the doubt that we have in our hearts so often that despite what you have done for us, despite the cross of Christ, still we come to our trials and we wonder if you even love us. We confess the way that we complain like the Israelites complained in the wilderness, so we complain when we meet trials. Lord, we need your help. We need your forgiveness. We need your grace. We want to be those who meet trials and still find joy in Christ, find in those moments of pain the sweetness of your presence among us. Give us that joy. We want to be those who, as we go into the world, Lord, our testimony is intact. Our witness to the world is intact because when life rubs against us, we praise you. We sing in the dark. We need your help because our hearts are hard and fickle. So Lord, forgive us today. Fill us with a sense of our joy and peace in Christ, we pray. Amen. If you um, would like somebody to pray with you uh, for something, there will be people up front uh, to, to do that. So don't leave um, burdened and heavy. Stay, enjoy some fellowship, and, and let's pray for one another. As a benediction, I want to read 2 Thessalonians 3, 3 to 5. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your heart to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen.